You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. So turn to Galatians um, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And many of you, I would guess there would be about 10 of you in here that could probably memorize this verse back in the day when you were a little Sunday schooler. And it goes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And and I think freedom from sin, freedom from different ways of doing life, freedom from legalism, freedom from sin. And it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And then Paul writes uh, about that. And then I'm going to skip ahead to verse 13. And it says this, it says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And then do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. I think lots of people think, um, you know, once, once I'm free, oh, I could do whatever I want, meaning I could go live it up how I want to live it. And Paul is saying, don't use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another humbly in love. Verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And then verse 15, if you bite and devour each other, that's figurative, if you're mean to each other and you hate each other, you say mad things and mean things about each other. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And this morning, we're gonna talk about uh, the church, church history, we're going to talk about a time in church history that maybe isn't too different from now, where people of different uh, denominations hated each other and bit and devoured each other, figuratively speaking, and how we can learn from that and do better than that. So let's pray this morning. God, we come before you, um, your, your saints, your church, here to learn about you, to learn about you uh, and the lives of people that have gone before us, specifically the, the colonies and the Puritans and the Quakers. And, and Lord, would you use their history to, to speak to us today that we might not make the same mistakes, that we would uh, learn from the things they did well. And Lord, we would be a, a glorifying, holy church before you. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. And everybody screamed. Amen. Amen just means, yes, I agree. So thanks for screaming along. Let me tell you a story. I guess it's not really a story, but kind of a fact I found about um, churches or anything that's, uh, I'm going to say it like this. The more things that are, the things that are very similar, oftentimes we like to make, like look at the differences and exaggerate how different they are, even though they're very close to the same. It's called cross-race effect, if you want to look that up on Google's or the Wikipedia's later. It's an interesting phenomenon that the more familiar we get with something, the more we see the differences in that thing. For instance, churches. There's lots of different denominations. I could start naming them. The Methodists, the uh, Presbyterians, the Baptists, the Charismatics, the Pentecostals, the uh, Covenantals, the Anglicans, the uh, Episcopalians. I'm sure you could yell out some more if you wanted to. And so we think about like all these different denominations. And I imagine that if we laid out the beliefs and what all these different denominations believe, 99 point something percent of what all those denominations believed and how they did church would be the same thing. Um, And yet there's differences. And I think sometimes we like to pinpoint those differences and make a big deal about it and and separate ourselves. And so today's kind of lesson is going to kind of 
it's a, it's a lesson about unity and Christian unity because so often I'll hear like people around New Life make fun of the Baptists. The Baptists make fun of the Methodists. The Methodists make fun of the Presbyterians. It's like, oh, those nasty Presbyterians. And you find out like, well, why do you not like the Presbyterians so much? It's like, well, everything they do is just wrong and they're, they're mean and they're, just, they're Presbyterians. And you're like, well, d- deep down, you know, what, what is going on here that you don't like the Presbyterians, for instance? And they might say, well, you know, I had a bad experience. And well, what, what was your bad experience? And it's like, well, it turns out that they went to a Presbyterian church when they were little. They're like young uncle's church. And at a Sunday school class, one of the kids in Sunday school called them four eyes because they had just gotten glasses and it like ruined their life. And now they think all Presbyterians are evil and mean because of this one little thing that happened. And I imagine like the majority of people that make these statements against Presbyterians or against the Baptists or against the Methodists really don't know deep down, like foundationally, theologically, historically speaking, what the differences are. They just have these, I don't know, preconceived notions. And we, I think we overstress the differences sometimes. And I compared it in my head. I'm like, maybe it's something like the airlines. Yes, I'm comparing the airlines to a church right now. I apologize, but maybe it'll be helpful. Um, I imagine whatever airline you fly, and if you fly a lot, um, I imagine like if you took a step back for just a minute and said, okay, how similar are all these airlines? I would say, well, they're probably like 99 point something percent the same. They all do the same thing. They fly you places. Um, that's what they do. But some people get so upset. Like if you're a United person, any United people, like you love United, then you hate Delta. And if you're a Delta person, you're like, oh, United is the worst ever. I flew United once and they didn't say hi to me and I didn't get my peanuts and it was it was like the worst experience ever um and it's like well I mean thinking I mean stepping back for just a second to compare ourselves as Christian denominations to airlines there's a lot wrong with that comparison so just bear with me for a second but 99 percent of of what the airlines do is the same to doesn't matter the airline. And maybe you had a bad experience one time with one particular airline, just like maybe you went to a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church, an Anglican church, and you saw something that you didn't like, and you just think it's all like that, and you you overstress the differences, then you do the similarities. And today, we're going to look back in church history and look at this group of people, these several groups of people that really stress the differences, so much so that they killed each other on account of these differences. They're all Christians, they're all Protestant Christians, and here these Protestant Christians were literally killing each other for heresies and differences, and may that not be. May we learn something from that. May we stress our similarities more than our differences. So hopefully that analogy is somewhat helpful, and you don't leave here being like, wait, so what did Joe talk about again? I just remember like something about Delta and no peanuts or something. No. Stay with me. So, welcome to the Mill Sunday School. Officially, if you're new, there's some cards. If you fill it out uh, as you leave, or you could come bring it to me, uh, we'll take your card. If you want an email or a call, you can check those boxes, and we'll try to uh, communicate with you, tell you more about Sunday School, the Mill on Friday night, the other services happening at New Life. But welcome. And then I thought I would start announcing this. I think it's kind of cool that most of us go over and sit in Section 10. Any Section 10ers? What, what? Um, so, if, you, if you're new, go with somebody that, you know, it's, it's, we could be accused of having like an arena over there. Uh, it's very big. Um, so it, it's better when you go to church with other people and have fellowship with them. So do that. If you're new, join someone going over there to the second service. So 
church history, this month of April, colonial church history. If you want an assignment, if you're extra nerdy and you want the nerd alert, we're reading this book. We're almost done with it. Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. Uh, chapters 29 to 33 are the chapters we are kind of covering right now. Very briefly, lots of, lots of things we're covering. But if you're reading this, and I think this announcement only applies, I imagine, to like five of you, but to the five that it applies to. Well done. So I will keep announcing it till this series is over. And by the way, if you hate church history and you're bearing along with church history, uh, next month we will be done with church history and we will start other fun stuff. So I don't know. If you hate church history, why are you even here? Like, just get out. Just leave. <laughs> just kidding. Um, so let's talk about the Christian colonies. Let me put this map up. It'll be too small to see, but you can get the gist maybe from where you're at. Um, Beginning when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, what year? 1492. Uh, The new world was discovered. And I say new world, of course, uh, from the European perspective. I imagine the natives living in what is today uh, the new world would not say it's the new world to them. Like, we've been living here a long time. But anyways, uh, the new world to Christianity. Christianity during this time will triple uh, with the amount of people and with uh, the the development of colonies. And so if you look at this map that I found on the Googles, uh, Spain colonizes kind of that that yellowish color there, South America, Mexico. France uh, kind of colonizes the green there in Canada. That's why places in Canada, yep, go Canada. Um, Go Canadianites or whatever. Um, there's French-speaking cities of Canada, and uh, so that's the green there. And then, like the Portuguese, the the darker green is Brazil. There, colonizing bits and pieces of the New World. And we, of course, as Americans, are most influenced by the English colonies, specifically the first 13 colonies, New Hampshire, New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, the original 13 colonies. And many of you know a lot already about the original 13 colonies. How many of you know something about the original 13 colonies? If you were alive in fourth grade, you learned something. If you were alive in middle school, you probably learned something. If you were alive for me, I think I took uh, uh, American church, American history, excuse me, when I was a junior. Does that sound about right? Senior? Anyways, uh, sure, whatever. Um, So we know something about the founding of our nation and the 13 colonies. But what I imagine many of us do not know, because if you went to a secular school like I did, um, there's the separation of church and state and teachers don't want to overemphasize the religious nature of the founding of our country. So some of those details get hidden or get muddied in the waters of learning about the founding of our country. And so I want to give you a discussion question to meet the people around you. If you're at a small table, jump right into a bigger table Uh, bigger the better. In some ways, it's kind of a pop quiz, but don't get all stressed out yet. You're allowed to talk. Uh, So assign someone to be a a scribe and write down some things. And this is the question. What do you know about the Christian details of the 13 colonies? Many of you could name some of the 13 colonies and why they were founded, but maybe what you need to jar your memory on is the Christian details of the 13 colonies. So ready? Get set. Discuss. All right. Anybody want to start us off? You don't have to share. If, if everyone at your table is pointing at you, then you should share, but you do not have to. So, Mr. Burton. 
Okay. Shh. Listen. So the 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 big one, that I guess the big biggest misnomer is that um, all the founding fathers were all deists and they didn't really believe in yeah. God. And they're they're just. I mean, it was just some so some flavor or whatever. That's. Not true. I'm most so the founding them, fa- you're saying the founding fathers weren't all deists. I think it was just Jefferson who was really the the biggest one. But <laughs> other than that, I mean. Many so for of them, the most part, the Christian founders. Yeah. A good amount of them held theology degrees in the mind. Great. And yeah. So yeah. So I think that's often hidden in our the secular teaching of our history is that oh they were just you know good people that kind of liked the Bible. No, they were Christians. They were believers. So yes. Anybody else? Yes. Oh, right, right behind me, Annalise. Thank you. So, I, a, a group that eventually became known as the Puritans left England to go to Holland to avoid religious persecution, um, and then they faced persecution there, and they got on a boat called the Mayflower and headed to the Americas. That's a great point. Yes, in order to get religious freedom. And yeah. So, did anyone raise your hand if you at your table you talked about religious freedoms? That is a huge part of why. <laughs> The English colonists came to America. 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 All right, anybody else? I'll start saying Bueller if we need to. No? Yes. Mrs. Dr. Foley. Okay. Um, Steve went to Colonial Williamsburg a while back and actually went to a lecture by someone who was um, reenacting George Whitfield, uh-huh. who was a evangelist up and down the coast and what and it was a secular thing but what they said was that because of the revival that he sparked helped to spark up and down the colonies mm-hmm. that there was a day of fasting and prayer right before the revolution kicked off and that they believed that that was what held the colonies together to enable them to fight against the British. Interesting. A day of fasting and prayer. Yeah. Like early in 1776. Yeah. He may know more about it when When Steve comes back in. Well, thank you guys for sharing. I think um, the biggest thing is this idea of religious freedom. The the English colonists coming over, for the most part, um, had the reason of coming over for religious freedoms. And why were they seeking religious freedoms? Well, here's a really big thing we need to talk about, which is the church in England in the 1600s. What's another name for the church in England? Anglican Church. So here's Church of England or the Anglicans. Here's a picture of, uh, that's uh, a famous bishop. What's his name? Rowan? Anyways. um, The Church of England... Uh, separated themselves from the Catholic Church. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Not because of theology, but because of politics. If if you were here or if you know the story about the Church of England, you know something about King Henry VIII and how he wanted a divorce. Couldn't get a divorce, so he kind of splits off England from the Catholic Church and makes his own church, the Church of England or the Anglican Church. And for the most part, in the 1600s, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, same thing, different name, uh, was very, very Catholic in its theology, in the sacraments, and how they did thing they they had and still have the common book of prayer which is written out how a service must go the prayers that are to be said and if you were a puritan we're going to talk about that word a lot you'll hear me say the word puritan so who are the puritans well they were a bunch of people that wanted to purify the Church of England. So they thought things like uh, just reading prayers that were already written down weren't as authentic. 
And maybe some of you feel that way sometimes. Um, sometimes we, at New Life, we do prayers that are pre-written down, and so we're just like praying and kind of reading all along as a congregation. And some of you are probably like, that's awesome. I love it when we do that because this prayer has been thought out and this prayer has uh, gone through the test of church history. And it's not just something I'm randomly praying, but it's something that has been thought out. And some of you on the other side might be like, well, I think it's more authentic when a prayer is more personal and it's prayed uh, live, not already pre-written down. And the people of England, the Puritans that wanted to purify the church, um, they wanted prayers that were authentic to them, prayers that uh, were said in the moment, not written down. They didn't want a service that was traditional. They wanted to read passages of Scripture that they wanted to read. In many churches, there's something called a lectionary. Raise your hand if you know what a lectionary is. A couple people. <laughs> a lectionary is like the readings of the day. So, uh, for instance, in a high church, like an Anglican, very traditional Anglican service, and I, have to, I do have to say that lots of Anglican, today Anglicanism can be uh, all over the place. You could be very traditional or more Catholic. You can be crazy charismatic Anglican and all under this banner of Anglicanism. Um, but back in the day, uh, Anglicanism was much more traditional and they had something called a lectionary. A lectionary is like the Bible readings of the day. So they're already thought out. So it's like this continual three-year pattern of what you're going to read in the Bible every single day. Anybody grow up in a church like that where you read, you had like readings? It's pretty cool. It's this idea that you get a big scope of the Bible and it's all planned out uh, and it carries on through the church calendar around uh, Christmas time. You'll be reading Christmas passages around Easter. You'll be reading stories about the resurrection and so on and so forth. Kind of cool, but if you're a Puritan in England, you're a rebel against that, and you want to purify that. You want to say, well, we should read passages that are applicable to us today. So they wanted to break free from the English church, uh, and they wanted religious freedom. There were Catholics, there were Lutherans, there were uh, Presbyterians, there was Baptists in England in the 1600s being persecuted. And the least of that persecution was they were taxed heavily. If you weren't part of the Church of England, you were taxed heavily. Um, but the worst of it came through persecution, death. Like you could be sentenced to death for not being a Church of England member and a follower and re rebelling against the church, being a Puritan, uh, having good intentions supposedly of wanting to purify this church uh, from its papist traditions. And papist means uh, from like the, the Pope traditions, traditions of the Catholic church. Well, then you could be excommunicated. And so instead of being excommunicated, instead of being um, killed, you could leave. That could be a choice, and you could go to one of the new colonies. I'm about to overwhelm you with a bunch of information, as I probably already am doing. Um, but here's where some of them went. The Baptist, they go to Rhode Island. Catholics, they go to Maryland, which is kind of a cool name because you're like, oh, that's cool. Where did they come up with the name Maryland? Well, they were Catholic, and Catholics venerate and think very highly of the Virgin Mary, so that's Mary's land. The Puritans go to Massachusetts and Connecticut, the Lutherans to Delaware, Presbyterians, Long Island, Quakers, who we'll talk about, go to Pennsylvania. So it's this huge idea that I don't want you to leave here without, that in England, the church was persecuting people that were not uh, the Church of England followers, 
And so one of their choices was to leave and go colonize the new world. And so specifically today, we're going to talk about in blue, the Puritans, the Quakers, and the red there. So if I'm overwhelming you with lots of information, we're about to narrow this all down and just talk about two more groups. Is anybody else confused? Just look at me like, you're like, dude, it's like raining out. I'm tired. What are you talking about? This is too much. I realize it probably is too much. So we're going to narrow down, just talk about the Puritans and the Quakers. So here's the Puritans boat. Came over in 1620. What's the name of this boat? Very famous. Starts with a May, ends with a flower. <laughs> they, uh, the Puritans come over the, on this boat. I think there was like 102 of them come over for religious freedom. They are Puritans seeking freedom to operate in the faith how they want to. They didn't want to read from the common book of prayer. They didn't want all the the high church tradition and the liturgy. They wanted to worship as they wanted to worship or something that was relevant to them. And so they came over. They were headed to, uh, some of you might know this, they were headed to, uh, they were headed to Virginia and ended up in Massachusetts. So they weren't the best of sailors, um, but they were seeking religious freedom. And out of the 102 that come over, they wanted to found a city on the hill, as John Winthrop would call it, a famous Puritan, a city that is totally uh, set out to please God and to do things the way they thought the Bible was teaching them to do it. So out of the 102, I think something like 50% of them died after the first year, but they were doing something magical um, and magical. Like they were starting in some ways the foundation of our country, the pilgrims coming over. They're called Puritans or pilgrims or people from the Mayflower. They're sail- they sail over. Here's a, a map. Uh, you see on the map where Virginia is and like how far off they were if they landed in Massachusetts. Um, so they land in the very famous, the Plymouth Rock. Anybody ever been to Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts? Oh, lots of people. Sweet. So you go there and you visit it. You see where the pilgrims, uh, these Puritans first landed, and you realize that they came over for religious freedom. They, they made little churches that look something like this, very simple church. Uh, those are not stained glass windows. Puritans wanted big open uh, windows and spaces so that they could read the Bible. They didn't want someone else reading the Bible. They didn't want a lectionary of just reading the Bible. They wanted large chunks of the Bible. They, um, I've said this before, and no one has ever proven me wrong, and so I'll keep saying it. Uh, and it's, it's pretty fascinating if this is really true, but I've yet to find anyone who has proved this wrong, that the first civilization ever in recorded history on the face of this earth to require that both every boy and every girl read was the Puritans in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. You're like, what? That's kind of, that can't be right. And I've looked, I've, I've Googled it, I've wikied it, and I can't find an earlier civilization. There's plenty of civilizations that required just the rich boys to, to, be at, to learn how to read. There's plenty of civilizations that taught, oh, if you were rich enough, you could, you could send your girls and boys to school. Of course, in, in history, there's lots of just like, oh, the boys need to learn how to read. But I think the first civilization ever on the face of this earth to require every boy and every girl to read were the Puritans. And why did every girl and boy need to read? The Bible, so that they could read the Bible for themselves. They were astonishingly literate for their time. Uh, What are some more details? They didn't like uh, wedding rings or Christmas, bah humbug. Um, 
because where's wedding rings in the Bible? Where is Christmas in the Bible? Not in the Bible, so let's just cut that out. Um, they, they, they did not like the traditional church, the liturgy. They wanted things to be uh, just the Bible and the preaching of the Bible. If you were a really good preacher and you were a Puritan preacher, then you could preach around the hourglass two times. That means like all the, all the sand would fall. That takes an hour. Then you would do it again. You could preach for two hours. I'm not a good Puritan preacher. I, I got like 45 minutes in me, and then I go home and take a nap. Um, <laughs> but a good Puritan preacher would, would preach for two hours. They would study the Bible. Uh, they had these uh, ways that you would teach toddlers to read the Bible with like, A, in Adam's fall, we send all. B, uh, the Bible mind, uh, like mining the Bible. See, Christ crucified for sinners, um, and so on and so forth through the alphabet. Kids were taught how to read, and they had a Christian community. They had a Christian colony, and they carried out Christian laws and rules. These will be the same group of Puritans uh, that maybe we'll talk about another time, the Salem witch trials that they uh, um, persecute and declare these girls witches and then kill them, a very kind of sad, eye-opening time in church history that we'll have to talk about another time. But they carried out a Christian, they wanted to have a Christian colony based upon their Christian rules. So here's one more discussion question for you. Um, and this discussion question um, is kind of based upon like, what if you were planting a Christian colony somewhere? Uh, let's say some of us, maybe within our lifetime, uh, or a kid's lifetime, get to go to Mars to plant a colony. And you're like, oh, it'd be cool if this colony was like a Christian colony, like Christian rules, Christian foundations of how this colony of people or are going to live. Well, there's maybe a balance that begins to happen. It's like, well, how much religious freedom do you give within the colony and how much do you carry out Christian rules and values? For instance, if you're on a colony in Mars and you're like, oh, we need to do things like the Bible says, like, oh, murdering is bad in the Bible, so no murdering. But then you're like, well, most, most civilizations anyways, that's already a rule. But the Christian Bible also has rules about adultery. So what do we do if someone commits adultery? Should we punish them in the secular colony government world? Should we or should we not um, to throw a hot issue, hot button issue at you? Or what about gay marriage? If, if we're forming a Christian colony on Mars, do we make the Christian rule that a marriage is between a man and a woman? But what happens if someone joins our colony from another religion? Like how much freedom versus Christian kingdom do you allow in your colony? Hopefully I'm wording this okay. So the discussion is religious freedom versus kingdom of God. And I spelled freedom the old English way of spelling freedom in, on, uh, in honor of our Puritans who came over seeking religious freedom. Because here's where we're going with this. If I could just say one more thing before you discuss. The Puritans come over from England seeking religious freedom. And then they colonize, and then do they give freedom to the other people that are not Puritans? No, not so much. They don't. And so it's like, well, you came over for religious freedom, but then why don't you give out freedom for other people to have other Christian faith? So anyways, that's the discussion question. Hopefully uh, a good one and a relevant one for us today. So take like five minutes and discuss. Ready? Get set. Discuss. 
All right, if you had to raise your hand and you had to pick um, a side, would you lean towards, in your colony, let's say on Mars, would you lean towards giving anyone and everyone religious freedom, or would you lean towards like an establishing a Christian community on Mars? So if you had to vote, and I'm sure lots of you would be like, well, well, this and that. If you had to pick one or the other just for the purpose of this discussion, how many of you would lean towards giving everyone freedom to do whatever they want? Okay, hold them high. And how many of you, if you're planning a colony in Mars, would want to make it a Christian kingdom-focused colony? One, two, three, four, five. So it looks like the freedom people would win. There'd be more freedom. Yeah, go freedom. Um, But there is that, hopefully you had a good discussion at your tables. And what's interesting is we can see the Puritans leaning much more towards wanting to establish a kingdom of God and not letting other people have freedom. So let's talk about one more group, the Quakers, and then how the Quakers, um, how they interacted with the Puritans. And by the way, it won't be very good. The Puritans will end up killing and exiling and excommunicating Quakers. In fact, the picture that is on your notes, uh, we'll talk about her in just a minute. She is a Quaker, uh, if, you, if you see the picture, being led by Puritans to her death. Why did they kill her? Well, they killed her for being a Quaker. And so who were the Quakers? What did they believe? Well, it is true that the Quaker oatmeal was named after the Quakers, but it was kind of like much later in history, like someone researching the Quakers thought they were pretty cool and then named their mill, the Quaker mill, and then the Quaker oat mill meal uh, came about. Anyway, so it does have some, so if you're like, oh, I know the Quakers, it's like that guy in the box with the oatmeal. Well, kind of. Um, Let's talk about the real Quakers. The real Quakers were were founded in like 1600s, the mid 1600s, by a guy named George Fox, and George Fox went around preaching. So, so imagine this: like the the Anglicans. Uh, the Puritans want freedom from the Anglicans. The Puritans think the Anglicans are too liturgical and their prayers that are read aren't as authentic. Well, as, as far as the Puritans are from the Anglicans, the Quakers are to the Puritans. So this guy named George Fox begins preaching that we should not have church buildings. We should not have hymnals. We should not have paid preachers. We shouldn't even have sacraments. He says the sacraments all take away from the Spirit of God or the inner light. And I don't know that they called themselves Quakers. We'll talk about why they were called Quakers in a minute, in a minute but they're often called children of light or the friends um, uh, of friends of God. And they really believed that the, any organized religion Uh, Any organization of Christianity wasn't needed. You just need the Spirit of God. And so if you went to a Quaker meeting, you would sit in a round group of people, and there really wouldn't be any leader amongst them. They would all get together, they'd sit down, and then there would be silence. And they would wait. And wait. Until someone felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking to them, and then they would speak up. They'd say, I have a prophecy. I have a scripture for us to turn to. I have a song for us to sing. And then they would sing it. They would give the prophecy. They would give whatever. uh, And then they'd be quiet again. Sounds like a fun church service, don't you think? 
sounds like one that is really authentically trying to be led by the Holy Spirit. It's like, we're not going to pre-think what this church service should be like. We're not going to have a paid preacher. We're just going to wait on the Holy Spirit. And that's one way of doing church. And to them, it was a very authentic, very good way of doing church. They were the radical hippies of their day. Of the 1600s, they were radical. They were crazy. The idea that you didn't need a church building, the idea that you didn't need a, a paid preacher, the idea that you didn't need any organization in a church service, that was craziness uh, to the Puritans. And the Quakers went even more so, and they would uh, try to create riots to, to shake up what the Puritans were doing. They would ring bells during Puritan church services. The Quakers, there's uh, evidence that they would disrupt Puritan church services. They would bust into a Puritan church service and make a bunch of noise. Uh, the, at least one time they got naked to symbolize true purity. Uh, I imagine that would disrupt a church service. There's a lot of things that could disrupt. There's a lot of things that, <laughs> so if someone, a Quaker came in here totally naked and disrupted, she's like, yeah, you, you won. You disrupted the service. You got us. <laughs> um, it's uh, a guy named William Penn who's given a large uh, forest in what is today Penn, Sylvania. Uh, Sylvania means forest, so Penn's forest. And he becomes a Quaker. And he sets aside Pennsylvania for Quakers, and he sets aside the city of Philadelphia for true religious freedom. No matter what religion you are from, you can come to Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, the the city of brotherly love, that's what that word means, uh, and you can have religious freedom. Whether you're a Quaker or a Puritan or a Lutheran or a Catholic, you can come to this place and not receive religious persecution from the majority. Because Quakers were considered crazy Christians. They were considered heretical. They were considered these uh, deviants and heretics, and they were killed. There's the, the lady that's on the cover of your notes is Mary Dyer, led to her execution in Boston on June 1st, 1660. And here's a, a painting of some Quakers being hung at the hand of the Puritans. And it's like, why? Why in the world were they killed? Well, because they thought church should be a little different. And here, here we go back to that analogy that I started off with. I mean, 99 point something percent of the theology and ecclesiology of a Puritan and a Quaker are like totally similar. But it's that some percent that's different that often we as Christians see and we, we just focus on the difference and we uh, make the difference bigger than it ought to be, so much so that in the 1600s, Puritans killed Quakers just for being a little different in their religion. And so I want to conclude today, maybe we'll end just a tad early, um, with this idea that I think we're doing pretty good at New Life Church. Not to pat our own selves on the back too much, but go ahead. That feels, that feels good. Doesn't that feel good? Um, I've, I've been bragging about New Life uh, for lots of different reasons over the years, and this lesson and preparing this lesson really makes me so grateful of things going on around New Life. And I kind of talked about this um, 
a couple weeks ago when we talked about the Anglican Church and how the Anglican Church came about, and we mentioned that uh, one of our pastors, Glenn Packiam, is actually seeking his ordination as an Anglican, and he's staying at New Life Church. If you don't know about this, it's pretty cool. Glenn blogged about it and answers a lot of frequently asked questions, which there's lots of questions like, whoa, you're, you're becoming Anglican? Are you still staying at New Life? Theologically, what's that mean? What's going on? Why become Anglican? Well, in, in Glenn's uh, history and his, his church life and experience, he has really fallen in love with liturgy and the common book of prayer and this thought out service, a liturgical service. And a couple weeks ago, I shared that and I asked Glenn, is it cool that, I, that I'm telling Sunday school that you're becoming Anglican? He's like, oh yeah, go ahead, tell the story. And I talked and then podcasted it. And then I sent Glenn the, the podcast and said, Glenn, what do you think? What do you think about what I said? And he said, uh, I hate you. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. He said, great sermon. And then he said, at the end of your sermon, so this is a slide from a couple weeks ago. Do, how many of you remember this slide? Anybody? Oh, sweet. Lots of you. So I talked about, oh, there's maybe a pendulum, a balance of things. On the right is church tradition. On the left is relevance and connection. Like, let's be relevant as a church. Let's uh, sing songs and prayers, uh, say prayers that are very relevant to who we are as New Life. And then the other side of the pendulum is church tradition. It's like, well, let's keep things the same. Let's look back at our very rich history as Christians and do some of the things that have been done before because it has stood the test of time. And so there's this pendulum between maybe liturgy and uh, modern liturgy. Uh, and I said, every church has a liturgy. It's just how traditional you want to be, really, if you're more traditional, if you're more contemporary. And I talked about this pendulum, and Glenn said, great job, Joe. I liked what you had to say. I appreciate the pendulum swing thing, this analogy, but he said something very wise. And I was like, wow, that's, that's good. That's so good. I'll, I'll come back to it and talk about it today. Because he said, if, if it is just a pendulum and, and just coming back to the middle and not swinging too far, well, then it, church and the church experience becomes a little bland, he said. He said, why don't we have another analogy? And, and in my head, I thought, well, maybe there's another analogy that will make a lot of sense. So here goes. So let's say there's an umbrella a figurative umbrella of Christianity. And I do have to say that the things that we're talking about have to follow under or fall under this umbrella. I'm, I am not saying that, oh, anything spiritual, any religion, it's just, oh, just, you know, willy-nilly, it's all just relative. No, it has to come under the umbrella of Christianity. And once you're under the umbrella of Christianity, maybe it's like a continuum of colors. So think about it like this. Um, so on one side is orange, on one side is green. Maybe it's two different ways of doing things. Maybe it's uh, more liturgical or more contemporary ways of doing church. And if all we strive for is to not lean too far and come into the middle, well then, do you know what color is in between um, green and orange? Yucky brown. Who likes yucky brown? Don't raise your hand. It's gross. No one likes brown. But rather, if we take out this brown section, then I think what Glenn was trying to say and this idea that I really enjoy thinking about as, as we as New Life have uh, different groups and different uh, flavors of faith at New Life Church. There are some of you that are much more like the Quakers. Um, oh, did I forget? To, I think I forgot to tell you why they're called the Quakers. Did I tell you? 
because they would literally like quake, like they would quake, like they would be, sin would be revealed to them and the Holy Spirit would convict them and they would like shake or quake. And they, people walking in our church service would see these people quaking under the power of the Holy Spirit and that hence the name Quakers. Now you know. Um, so some of you are kind of like more like the Quakers than you are like the Anglicans. Some of you would say, yeah, I've had religious experiences where I've quaked and I've cried at church and I raised my hand and I love that and I believe in prophecy and the gift of tongues and God speaking today and I'm emotional when it comes to church. So some of you would say, I'm more of a Quaker. And some of you would say, I'm more of an Anglican. I really like when we say prayers that have already been written down. I'm really excited when we, when we pray prayers that are like, you know, you pray this part, then this part, or when we all in unison say, for instance, the Nicene Creed or the Lord's Prayer, you really connect with that. And so anyways, what I'm saying is you don't have to just find the middle ground for middle ground's sake. You can be fully, you know, love the Anglican traditional style, or you can love, you know, a style that's more Quakerish and emotional and full and charged of energy and maybe relevance to you and your life and waiting on the Holy Spirit. And both are really good. And so the reason why we figuratively patted ourselves on the back as new lifers is because we have both of those streams, both of these vibrant colors within New Life Church. And I think that's a very good thing. We, they, we, we aren't even thinking about excommunicating each other. We aren't even thinking about killing each other because of our differences in faith. And that is a very, very good thing. So I'll I'll close with the scripture that I read to begin with, that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Skipping to 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Let's pray to close. God, we come before you. You are a good, holy God, and ultimately we want to worship you in the way that most gives glory to you and to you alone. God, we don't want to just be guilty of um, worshiping how we want to worship and how what we do is the only decision that matters, but we want to worship in the way that reflects you and glorifies you and you alone. God, let us see, let us learn from those Christians who have gone before us. Let us learn from their mistakes. Let let us continue in some of the things that they have done to glorify you. So God, you're a holy, wonderful, loving God, and we praise you. We love you. And everybody said, amen. All right, friends, go in peace and peace out. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.